reading through the scriptures uh, uh, on a yearly plan, just going through Old and New Testament this year. And uh, I was reading Psalm 44 just the other day. And uh, verse 23 says this, Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression? We collapse in the dust, lying face down in the dirt. Rise up. Help us. Ransom us because of your unfailing love. When I read those words, I thought, my word, the scriptures are so contemporary, aren't they? That I'm sure that many of us, and certainly you find that through the Psalms, where the psalmist cries out, for God to help. And I'm sure that in our lives too, we have, perhaps even this week, cried out to God for his help. Some weeks ago, uh, there was a YouTube video by Stephen Fry. I don't know if any of you saw that. It was doing the, the rounds on the social media. And um, Stephen Fry was angrily denouncing God as capricious, mean-minded, and stupid. And this went viral, and it had over 5 million views in the first two weeks. Uh, Fry was being interviewed by Gay Byrne on the Meaning of Life show. And he was asked by the presenter, not forgetting that Stephen Fry is uh, a confirmed atheist, he was asked by the presenter, what would happen if he walked up to the pearly gates and was confronted by God? Well, since our new series starting this morning is entitled, Where is God When Life Hurts?, which is focused on us trying to make sense out of suffering, I thought that we would this morning show that two-minute clip. So those of a nervous disposition and those who are easily offended, either brace yourself or at this moment go for a toilet trip. Okay, let's watch that, thanks. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite mm. of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically... That is the Odyssey. I think I, I'll say bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were... They didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. <coughs> totally selfish. Totally. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects, whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. 
So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that I ever got in this entire series. As you can imagine, there was an avalanche of responses, both from Christians and atheists. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams, said, I'd like to hope that if Stephen Fry ever met God, he'd wait for the reply. <laughs> Dr. Krish Kandahar from the Evangelical Alliance said, to blame God for childhood cancer is like blaming the landlord after the tenants have trashed the house. Timothy Stanley from Daily Telegraph was more pointed and he asked, who gets angry about an imaginary conversation? I think the comment of the week has to go to Giles Fraser, Reverend Giles Fraser, writing in The Guardian, who says rather cleverly, I don't believe in the God that Stephen Fry doesn't believe in either. <laughs> and I would say an amen to that. I just mentioned there are a few anecdotal responses, but there were a lot of rather academic and serious uh, responses as well, Phil uh, philosophical responses, theological responses, uh, from people who are far cleverer than me. But I personally agree with uh, what uh, the present Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Justin Welby, said. He stated that it was as much the right of Stephen Fry to say what he said and not be abused improperly by Christians who are affronted as it is the right of Christians to proclaim Jesus Christ. But what is it that we are to make of the tirade of Stephen Fry against God, against this God that he doesn't believe in? As Christians, should we just put up the white flag of surrender now? Or should we use those words and welcome them, and use them as a, a response, a Christian response, to an issue which is most difficult? Now, um, I think the latter, because I don't think that um, uh, what Stephen Fry is saying is anything new. And he has provided Christians with an opportunity, I believe, to uh, address some of these issues, because it is the most difficult of all subjects. Uh, Stephen Fry isn't the only one who's asking um, about God and suffering or God and evil in the world. George Barner, the public opinion pollster, was commissioned to conduct a national... Uh, survey And the one question that this uh, poll uh, asked was this. If you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And that went national. And the question was a good question. And the answer, top of the list, was why is there pain and suffering in the world? That was the number one question that people would ask to God. John Stott, Dr. John Stott, who was a church leader and a theologian, he said the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love. 
Now, in fairness to uh, Stephen Fry, he's only asking the same questions that millions of people have asked down through the centuries. He is only asking the same questions that many people today are asking. Although I would probably say that probably most people don't have uh, Stephen Fry's academic brilliance and his eloquence in articulating his feelings the way that he does. But this is the number one question. It's the number one question in your families amongst those who are not yet Christians, in the people that you work with. That is their number one question. And it's very important for us, I think, as Christians to face this question head on. Another thing to mention is that Christians haven't been caught out by Stephen Fry's onslaught. In fact, there's a whole subsection of theology. There's a subsection of theology called theodicy, which comes from two Greek words, theo for God, and dicy comes from a Greek word, dikasoni, which means justice. Justifying God, justifying God's actions is a whole section of theology given over to that, to that one question that Stephen Fry raises. And you could go into the libraries, you could go into the British Library, there would be whole sections, half a library on this subject, written, books written by people down through the ages. But where is God when life hurts? How can we make any sense of the apparent needless suffering in our world? Where is God in all of this? Why does God allow certain things to happen? Good questions. But before we uh, really get into this subject this morning, I want to just make another few introductory remarks, a few things I want to say here. That we're going to be spending the next few weeks on this subject and asking the question, where is God when life hurts? And these talks, these individual talks, will be a little bit like jigsaw pieces. And I will attempt to build up and provide some answers to this question. But I don't want you getting frustrated you know, at the end of the morning saying, well, Steve, he didn't mention this, so he didn't mention that. I thought he would have dealt with this in this particular way. Or that answer wasn't that comprehensive. Because what we're doing over a number of weeks is just building up the picture. And this morning is the on, only the first jigsaw piece. And there are going to be other jigsaw pieces. And for those of you who do jigsaws, you'll know that the more jigsaw pieces that you have, the clearer the picture becomes, Yes? But I need to tell you right at the very start that we don't have all the jigsaw pieces. Okay, that's important for us to know. Yes, there are things that we can say in response as Christians, and there are jigsaw pieces that we have which will build up this picture of why there is so much suffering in the world, and where is God when life hurts. But we don't have all the jigsaw pieces. In Isaiah 55, verse 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And I do believe that we have enough jigsaw pieces to provide us with at least some of the answers to this question. 
where is God when life hurts? Also, by way of introduction, I want to say that in some of the reading that I've been doing for this series, I became quickly aware that there are so many approaches to this question. There's the philosophical approach, which largely focuses on the existence of evil in the world. How can there be so much evil and suffering in a world which has been created by a God who is supposedly good? It can be answered theologically, learning about the great themes of the love of God and the justice of God, and that God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all-good. There's a biblical approach where you focus on certain Bible texts and passages trying to understand what these passages are saying to us today. And of course there's the pastoral approach as well, which focuses on making sense of pain and suffering when we face that personally. Well, I'm probably going to be dipping out, in and out of all of those areas. Uh, This morning, probably some of the things that I will have to say will be more philosophical as we start off. But overall, and probably first and foremost, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. And my desire really is to help others, help you through those times, those hard times of suffering that you experience in your lives. And also for us as Christians to be a part of the answer, part of God's answer to hurting people. Two words. Two words, that's all. Two words that form a question. Two words that not only form a question, they sometimes are an allegation, an accusation. Two words that I'm sure all of us in this building have uttered at some time or other. Two words that I have recently said. Just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, when the 27-year-old German Wings co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz, took his own life and the lives of 149 other people by deliberately crashing his plane in the Alpine Ravine in France. The needless suffering, not only of those who died through that, but also of their friends and their family. And the two words, why God? You know, we might come quickly to God's defense and say, well, God can't be blamed for the deliberate actions of a psychopathic human being. But others might come back and say, well, why didn't God give the pilot some superhuman strength, much in the way that he gave it to Samson on that day when Samson stood in the temple and asked God for strength once more, so that the pilot could at least have broken into the cockpit and saved the plane? Why didn't God intervene? Our world is full of suffering. Just this week I read of an Italian journalist who visited um, Ante Pavlic, uh, the pro-Nazi leader of Croatia in World War II. And Pavlic showed this journalist a basket of what looked like oysters. It was, he said, a gift from his troops. Forty pounds of human eyes. A small memento from the slaughter of Serbs and Jews and gypsies. And we all know those terrible stories of genocide. The victims of tyrants like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong. We know of the terrible evils of the Holocaust and the killing fields of Cambodia and the genocide in Rwanda. Where was God when all of this was happening? We watch the television coverage of earthquakes and tornadoes and mudslides when thousands perish and we say, God, where are you? Why didn't you stop it? And that was a question that I had a few years ago 
when with Martin I visited Mumbai and in that city I remember as far as the eye could see lining both sides of a noisy filthy congested streets were small shanties of cardboard and corrugated sheets situated right next to major roads where buses and cars were just spewing out exhaust fumes naked children played in the open sewage ditches people with missing body parts or deformed bodies sat begging and I was told that many of those people who were born in that place will live all of their lives in that place will eventually die in that place and my question and forgive me for this my question at the time was where is God in this festering hellhole we sometimes look at the heart-wrenching images of malnourished children suffering through lack of food or contaminated water and we wonder why doesn't God care closer to home we may be asking those questions you know as we watch family members or friends suffering from Alzheimer's ravaged their lives only becoming a shadow of what they once were or children whose young lives have barely started suffering with cancer or being seeing that that teenager being knocked down and killed by a drunken driver this week a friend of mine aged just 54 came to his end unexpectedly and like me he has young grandchildren who are the light of his life and as strange as it might sound the first questions my first thoughts were he's not going to see his grandchildren grow up and I said why God why God the reason I mention all of that is that this subject that we're going to be dealing with this morning and over the next few weeks isn't some sterile intellectual issue which is just debated in our universities but it's an intensely personal matter it's a matter which often leaves us bewildered and confused and frustrated and angry Stephen Fry hasn't cornered the market on asking the hard questions but they're also the questions of most thinking sensitive Christian people maybe a good place to start would be by quoting a, a statement made 300 years before Christ by a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus and um, even in the New Testament times his followers were still around we read in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was uh, evangelizing there in Athens and telling the various philosophers and there were two types that we are, we are told there were the Stoics and the Epicureans well the Epicureans were the followers of Epicurus who had lived 300 years before and they were tell and Paul was telling them about Jesus and his resurrection this is what Epicurus says either God wants to abolish evil and cannot or he can but he does not want to or he cannot and does not want to three three views there three options if he wants to but cannot he is impotent if he can and does not want to he is wicked but if God both can and wants to abolish evil then how come evil is in the world and I think that Epicurus summed up that 
dilemma so succinctly. Christians, we believe many things, but look at the next five things that we believe. And I'm sure that if you're a Christian, you will say, yes, I believe in these things. God exists. God is all good. God is all powerful. God is all wise. Evil exists. Now, Epicurus, this philosopher who lived 300 years before Christ, and many after him, would say that it's not logical for Christians to believe in all of those statements. Those statements can't all be true. It would be a little bit like saying, you are a supporter of fine football. You have an exceptional knowledge of the game of football. And you're a Birmingham City supporter. You know, <laughs> sorry, I could have used Aston Villa. It both would be true. Both would be true. <laughs> okay, let's, let's cut it out now. Get my drift. Those statements could not all be true about football or about, so we're told by Epicurus and others like him. Now, it would appear that you would have to drop one of those statements. But let's think about this. If God is all-powerful, then he can do anything. If God is all-good, he wants to do only good. And if God is all-wise, he knows what is good. So if all those things are true, then what we are told is that evil shouldn't exist. But evil does exist, so we are then told that we should assume that either God isn't all of those things or God himself does not exist. And that is the problem of evil and suffering at its most basic. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is just take a look at some of these statements to understand a little bit more about them and to understand whether we've got them correct in our thinking. Firstly, God is all-powerful. What do we mean by that? Are we saying that God is all-powerful, that he can absolutely do anything he wishes to do? Yes. But I would say that there's a caveat there. There's a, a proviso. That we are saying that God can do absolutely anything which is meaningful, anything that is possible, anything that makes sense. And I don't want to sound a heretic here, but there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot make himself cease to exist. God cannot make good evil. God cannot make mistakes. God cannot commit sin. C.S. Lewis, a great scholar, in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote that it's also impossible for God to give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from that person. Not even God can do that, things which are mutually contradictory. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to say that because nonsense remains nonsense, even when we talk it about God. Okay, let's think about that. Free will. Free will is a gift which God has given all people. It's a gift which we've all abused. God had the choice initially, a choice of either making us robots that were pro programmed to always love him and always do as he desired, or to give us freedom of choosing for ourselves whether we would love him and whether we would do good rather than evil. But the danger of God, if I can put it that way, the danger of God giving us free will is that we might use that same free will 
Not to love him, not to do good, but to abuse, to murder, to kidnap, to tell lies, to gossip, to slander, and all the rest. I suppose it would be a little bit like giving your teenager £10 pocket money every week and step in every time you thought that she was using that money unwisely, according to your judgment. In a sense, it wouldn't be her money at all. It would be your money which you are using indirectly through her. And when God gives us freedom of choice, he does so in very much of a hands-off way. He creates free people to make free decisions. Not in some predetermined way that we become robots, always doing what he pleases. But we have the freedom to love him or not to love him. We have the freedom to turn our backs on him, as many do, and to do evil. And therefore, we need to say right at the start that God is not the creator of evil, but the source of evil is mankind's wisdom. You know, if God created a world without human freedom, I've been asked, would it be a place without hate? Yes, it would. If God created a world without human freedom, would it be a place without suffering? Yes, it would. But it also would be a place without love, which is the highest value in the universe, real love, love for God and love for others. We must always make that choice. And with granting the choice, there is always the possibility that a person will choose the very opposite. So you might be asking yourself right now, is therefore God really in control of the world? Most certainly he is. God is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign God who reigns and rules the universe. He wills certain things and he allows certain things. Just think about it. You know, if we're tempted, uh, if we're tempted in perhaps an argument to say something very unkind to another person, is that God's will? No, it's not. If after drinking five pints of beer, someone is tempted to get behind the wheel of a car, is that God's will? Of course it's not. And Jesus made very clear that God's will isn't always achieved on earth. And that's why he encouraged his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. Meaning that God's will isn't always done on earth. And for the disciples and for us as his disciples to pray that that might come about. That not every free will decision made on earth is according to God's will. And even though God is all-powerful, he's omnipotent, not even God can do two things which are contradictory at the same time, which is give human freedom and remove human freedom. Now you see, most suffering in the world has its origins in the actions of people. Suffering is often caused either by the sins, as we say, of commission or the sins of omission. What are those? The sins of commission are the things that we actually do, the wrong that we do. Sins of omission is us not doing the right that we should do and the good that we should do, which causes suffering indirectly. I was told that if all the church members in the United States of America took on board what the Bible teaches about um, giving financially, and they did that in a dedicated way. And just say, for example, they decided to give, on average, 10% of their income. 
then the American church would not only be better resourced in its mission, but I've been told that there would be enough money to eradicate poverty from the face of the earth. Providing food, medicine, clean water, some basic education. I found that astonishing. Just catch that. We're not talking of all the Christians in the world. We're just talking of Christians in one country. And please, I'm not giving the Americans a knock here. This is just an example because probably they are the biggest group of Christians in the world. They are no better or worse, I'm sure, than Christians elsewhere around the world. And I would also say that some suffering through natural disasters might also be attributed to human decisions such things as shoddy workmanship, cutting corners, the use of inferior materials, the decision to build cities on earthquake fault lines and so forth. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. But he knows the future, absolutely. And it's possible that God will know that some of the suffering that maybe you are going through just now that good will occur from it. Do you remember the story of um, Joseph in the book of Genesis? There was an awful lot of things that went wrong in that young man's life. A young man who was beaten up by his jealous brothers. He was sold to foreigners. He was then sold as a slave. He was accused of attempted rape. He was put in prison. He was forgotten about. And during those years, he experienced a huge amount of suffering and pain. And then with one stroke of a pen, God turned all of his negatives into an amazing positive. And eventually he met up with his brothers and he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Maybe the greatest example of our knowing, uh, sorry, uh, of, of our all-knowing God, allowing suffering to be turned into a blessing, is found in the story of Easter. That God demonstrates that the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world ended up being the best thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. The death of God himself upon a cross. At that time, when his disciples were watching him, no one knew really the outcome of that terrible tragedy. It happened then, on that occasion. The ultimate evil resulted from the ultimate good. And it can happen elsewhere. It can happen also in our lives. And what God says to us is, trust me. For a moment, let's just uh, follow the, the dramatic storyline of Easter. And just for a moment, suppose you are the devil. You are this arch enemy of God. And you want to kill God, but you can't. However, you notice that God has a weakness. And God's weakness is that he loves creating and loving these human beings whom you can get at. And you've got the possibility of hostages because God loves them so much. God sends the prophets to enlighten these hostages, but you kill them off. And then God does the most foolish thing of all. He sends his own son. His own son plays by the rules. You cannot believe that God is that stupid. All you have to do is inspire some of your agents, men like Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate and the Roman soldiers, and get him crucified. Simple as that. So Jesus hangs on the cross. 
Forsaken by man, forsaken it seems by God. Bleeding, crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you feel as the devil? I'm sure you feel triumph, vindication. But you couldn't be more wrong. For this is not your triumph, it's his triumph, it's God's triumph. And it is your supreme defeat. You see, at the time of the, the crucifixion, the disciples couldn't see anything good that would result from that. And similarly, many of us face trials and suffering in our lives. And we could not possibly see any good em- emerging from this. But the God who brought victory from the jaws of defeat can do the same for us too in our times of suffering. And thirdly, God is all good. I know that's a a really hard thing for us to try to understand. Certainly when we're going through those times of hardship and suffering ourselves. When we're going through those circumstances which are so painful. And I'll come back to this in, in, in later talks. But just for now I want to say that through those times, they can be for our good in that we will grow as people in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise possible without hardship. The Apostle Paul spoke of it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. The writer to Hebrews provides us with an incredible insight into Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 8. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Just catch that for a moment. And if that was true of Jesus, why wouldn't it be true for each one of us also? I'm going to stop there. I realize that we haven't got very far this morning. And you might leave this morning saying, well, Steve, you you didn't say anything about natural disasters and you didn't say anything really about cancer. And what does the devil and the, the, the whole realm of darkness got to do with any of this? And, and why does pain need to hurt so much? And, you know, how should I respond to suffering in my life? Or how should I respond to suffering in the lives of other people? And there are many other questions as well. But I hope to deal with some of those questions over the next few weeks. But for now, the one thing that I want us all to do is to use this human freedom that God has given us and to choose, to choose to trust God. Yeah? To choose to trust God where we cannot see. We're going to sing a song which um, has been sung in this church for many years. It's a song that's written by a, a friend of mine who went through an extreme time of trial in his own life. Teach me to trust your ways, O Lord. Guys, if you'd like to come back. These are the words of that song, that we are, and song that we're going to sing in a moment. Your thoughts are so much higher than mine. I see so dimly at times. Your ways are so much higher than mine, and yet you care about my life. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to hold to you. Teach me to walk with you even though sometimes I'm blind. Teach me to run to you. Teach me to come to you. Teach me to trust you, Lord, and your plan for my life. 
Teach me to trust your ways, O oh Lord. Would you stand with me, please?